Amen. Somebody in my family has some musical talent um, because me and Autumn uh, don't. In fact, uh, I'm, all, I'm one of the guys that's always uh, singing the women's part, you know, in those songs like we sang this morning because I, I can't always track when I'm singing. So no musical talent, but uh, thankfully the Lord has blessed at least one of our children with that. All right, well, tonight, as I said, we're looking at biblical leadership in the church. And it's fitting that we look at this topic. Uh, Not only is it part of our series on the church this summer, but also we had an elder installed this morning, uh, so we got to see this practice already. And few doctrines have been attacked as much as biblical leadership. It started right away in the church. As soon as the apostles left the scene, within one generation, men were already devising schemes and ways that they thought would make the church better. Within one generation, a man named Ignatius, who was a very godly man and died for the faith, he began to write letters to churches, though, and say, maybe it's better that instead of having multiple men making decisions in the church as a plurality of elders, We'll set one man above the rest, and he can make the decisions. That way there's no fighting. There's no arguing. There's no bickering. And things will get done faster. Of course, the church has followed this lead. And within a couple of centuries, there was one man over many churches in each region of the world at that time that was Christian. So you had a bishop in Rome. They called this man the bishop. And they had the bishop in Rome who ruled over the churches in Western Christianity. You had the bishop in Carthage who ruled over Northern Africa and so on. Up to five different bishops ruling over each region. Then, of course, the Muslims came through, conquered four of those regions, and the one remaining was the bishop in Rome. Of course, we know him today as the Pope, which uh, supposedly means father of those churches that he rolls over. Even today, though, biblical leadership is fought against. It's resisted. And much of that is just because of our Western mindset, our free democratic society. John MacArthur says, 20th century American evangelicalism, with its heritage of democratic values and long history of congregational church government, tended to view the concept of elder rule with suspicion. Isn't it human nature that we just want to resist authority? I see it in my children as soon as they're born. They want to resist authority. So as a culture and even as a church, as we take on, it seems like the American church takes on more and more of the world, this idea of biblical leadership has been resisted. So we need to look and see what the Bible has to say on this topic. But before we do that, let's just consider some other reasons that we should care about such a thing as church government. Because sometimes you get into this doctrine of church government and people's eyes kind of glaze over and it sometimes feels like it's going over our heads. But there's some real practical reasons that we should look at this issue today, one of which I've already mentioned. Another is that many believers have died for a biblical or more biblical church government. Now think about it, of all the doctrines in the Bible, who would die over church government? But it's happened throughout history. Throughout the Middle Ages, people died when they would not submit to the Pope. 
Most notably in Scotland in the 1600s, you had a group called the Scottish Covenanters. They sought to maintain the reforms that had occurred during the Reformation. But the king of Scotland said he was to be head of the church. And the Presbyterians in Scotland said, no, the elders would gather together and form councils that would rule over the church. So it was sort of like eldership, but then they would have assemblies and councils. And the king said, no, if that's the way you want to do it, I'll send soldiers to persecute you. In fact, these believers were subject to suffering, torture, imprisonment, transportation to the American colonies, and executions. The king did raise 9,000 troops, and he sent them into the lowlands of Scotland to root out what he called rebels. These were referred to as the killing times. In 1685, two women, one a widow and another a 23-year-old young woman, were tied to a stake in the ocean. And when the water and the tide came in, they were drowned. Why? Because they would not swear an oath to the king that he was head of the church. They were part of this group called the Covenanters. In 20 years, 18,000 believers were killed in the killing time. So one reason we should consider this is Christians have been willing to die to say that Christ is head of the church and he has appointed a biblical church government. But many people die for things throughout history. That's not enough. We also need to think that God has left us with leaders. This is a common grace concept. We have leaders in the family, don't we? The father leads his children. The man leads his wife. The children are to submit to the parents. We have leadership in government. What does Romans 13.1 say? That God has appointed kings and rulers and authorities over us. So why would he do that? Why would he put leaders there and then leave us with no leadership in the church? So we should consider this concept because it only makes sense that God would have leaders in the church. But most importantly, why should we consider it? Because it's in the Bible. Because it's in the Bible. Christ wanted his church to have a clear understanding of the type of leadership that we were to have. Because as I said, it's very easy with man's own reasoning to go astray, and to abuse power. One historian, even in the 1850s, he said, as we advance through the centuries, light began to decrease in the church. Why? Because the torch of Scripture begins to grow dim, and because the deceitful light of human authorities begins to replace it. If we don't consider what Scripture has to say on this, it's very easy to replace it with our man-made schemes. So what I want you to do tonight is consider with me three aspects of biblical leadership in the church. And I'll give you these three real quick in case you're taking notes, and then we'll go back through them. One is the nature of biblical leadership. Two is the duty of biblical leadership. And we'll spend most of our time this evening on the responsibility of you, the church member, toward biblical leadership. So first of all, let's look at the nature of biblical leadership. Chris mentioned this morning the word nature. He was asking us to consider the nature of something. Nature just simply means the basic features. What is it made up of? What does it look like? And I'll summarize this, uh, as I said, in brief, because Chris already introduced us to some of these concepts this morning. But I do want to say that Christ is the ultimate authority in the church. 
He's the chief shepherd. He's the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He's the head of the church and the chief cornerstone of God's holy temple. Yet, even Christ appointed apostles, didn't he? These were his messengers who would go out, proclaim the gospel, plant churches, and oversee their growth. And what did the apostles do? They appointed elders in each church that they planted. So Christ is the head of the church, but we see already a clear line of governing authority through the apostles and to the elders. But what about each local church today? Well, each church today has a plurality of elders, or they should have a plurality of elders if they're operating as a biblical church. These are self-governing churches, so they're not held accountable by a pope, they're not held accountable by a council, an assembly, or a session, or anybody else anywhere in the world other than Christ himself. Now, the term elder is mentioned 20 times in the New Testament. Presbyteros, we get the word presbyter or presbyterian from this word. It's mentioned 20 times in the New Testament. The word overseer is mentioned five. The word pastor, surprisingly, is only mentioned once as an office in Ephesians 4.11. So we're commonly, uh, have heard the term pastor, but actually terms like elder and overseer are more common in the New Testament than pastor. The qualifications for this office, I just read from you, uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But I'll sum them up in a short sentence. Basically, it's a man with the ability to teach, who is above reproach, in his family, in the church, and in the community. If you see a man like that, he may be qualified for biblical leadership. I like what Mark Dever has to say about the qualifications. He says, an elder must be willing to have a life that is open to inspection. A life that is indeed a home, I'm sorry, that is actively open to outsiders, giving hospitality and enfolding others into their lives. Not only, though, are we to have qualified elders, but we are to have and see men serve. No church in the New Testament not one single church is mentioned that has a single elders. See, we're to see men serve in a group or a board of elders. Some people refer to a board or a plurality of elders. No one can point to a passage where one elder is mentioned ruling over a church. It's always in the plural, elders. As I said, 26 times if we add up presbyteros, pastor, and overseer. I once had a, a friend of mine out in California and in his church, they were switching from one pastor, many deacons, to a plurality of eldership. And he was not happy with that. And that surprised me because he had been through seminary, a couple of years of seminary with me. And we sort of got into this debate, and he said, you know, Michael, I understand what you're saying, but the Bible's just really not clear on whether we should have a plurality of elders. 26 times in the New Testament it's mentioned. And sad to say, this friend is um, no longer in seminary, uh, but he did move off and uh, is attempting to pursue ministry. Practically, though, a plurality of elders is the biblical model because it protects us from many things. I've listed a few here. Because there's always more than one elder, authority never resides in just one person. All of these abuse scandals that you hear within the church 
that you see news reports of, it's often one man who has complete authoritative rule over everyone in the church. That's not to say that plurality of elders cannot go wrong, but usually we see the case of one man. The teaching pastor or senior pastor, the man who fills his pulpit, is one among several elders. The teaching pastor does not have authority over the other elders, nor is he seen as an employee of the other elders. Authority belongs collectively amongst the elders. The teaching pastor himself is subject to the authority of the elder board as a whole. And so what does this mean at KBC? Well, it means that no major decisions are made without a unanimous vote of the eldership. This prevents all power from being in the hands of one man. I mean, if you're power hungry, you don't like the fact that you've got to go and get four other guys' approval to do something. In fact, there's two celebrity pastors in the last couple of years who wanted to make some very drastic changes in their church. And they had to go and get approval from their other elders. Well, sometimes the elders would not give these celebrity pastors approval. And one guy said he wished he could punch one of his elders in the mouth. He actually said that in a sermon. Then he went upstairs and he fired two of his elders and began to change the church to where he has now 50% power in that church when it comes to major decisions. He's now changed the church's bylaws. So while churches can try to function under different types of leadership, sometimes God will bless that. We see many great preachers. Me and Chris were just talking about Martin Lloyd-Jones and how he was the sole pastor in his church. He was a sole elder. But he was a very effective preacher. So sometimes God can bless that. But when we look to Scripture, we only see a plurality of elders. And so, young people, as you move away, as you go to college, as you look for other churches, consider this. Is there one man in charge, or are there many? Look at their distinctives and see if they're operating under biblical leadership. Number two, let's look at the duty of biblical leadership. The duty of biblical leadership. What is it that elders are supposed to do? This was my big question when I went through elders and training a few years ago. What is it that elders do on a day-to-day, regular basis? Well, Chris summarized them this morning. There's four major categories. One is prayer. So turn with me to Acts 6.4. And let's consider this aspect of prayer in Acts 6.4. It says, The apostles focused on prayer and teaching. Take a look at Acts 6.4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See, they had a problem in the church and the widows needed to be taken care of. And so in this case, the apostles appointed what we would call deacons today. They didn't call them that in this, in this passage, but we would call them deacons. And why is that? So that the apostles could focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, if that's the case in the apostles who were church leaders right away in Jerusalem, wouldn't it be the case today that elders also need to focus on prayer? Now let me tell you, one of the greatest parts of an elder meeting, and I've been to quite a few in the last few years, is that hour of prayer that we do right away. First thing, we have a short devotion, and then 
We go into an hour of prayer. And to see these men pray for each one of you, sometimes by name, and just going through the different ministries in our church for an hour, that's some of the sweetest time of prayer I've ever been a part of. Also, we see in James 5.14, no need to turn there, but it just says, if anyone is sick, then you must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. So the first aspect that an elder should do is prayer for the congregation. Also, he must be a teacher. This means he must exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We're talking about false teachers. Remember this morning, if you were here for Strange Fire, and the question was, what about false teachers, and who is a false teacher? Well, that's a job that the elders are to look into. They are to consider what is sound doctrine and what is false doctrine. And sometimes steps have to be taken to protect the flock from false teachers as they encroach upon us. To to be a teacher means you must have a knowledge of Scripture, the readiness to teach, and the ability to communicate. The Bible says some elders will labor and study hard in preaching and teaching. These are to be considered with double honor, which means they're to be paid. But all elders should be able to teach. I was reminded uh, just this morning, as I was saying bye to Don Woods, how instrumental he was in my life when we first came to KBC. I'd come from a church where there's one guy in charge, and he rules the roost, and nobody else teaches in that church. But we came here, and there's this thing called a plurality of elders, and here's this retired guy, Don Woods, teaching a class on systematic theology. The most in-depth thing you can really study in Sunday school here. And, uh, you know, I wasn't real hopeful because we didn't have the pastor teaching the class. But let me tell you, when I got in there, and as the weeks rolled by, that man faithfully studied the Word of God. And he brought every lesson to us and showed us where it was in Scripture. And we studied that book for two years. And that was so instrumental, it put a fire under me to learn more and more. And I thought, if this man can do it, and he hasn't been to seminary, he has no degrees behind his name in the Bible, and he can do it, then I need to do a better job with my family. I need to do a better job in the church of studying these doctrines and learning Scripture. And of course, the Lord just kept adding to that fire, but that was instrumental in me going into ministry someday. And I told him that uh, through email when I went to seminary. So the, the elders should pray, they should teach, they should also lead. Lead. The Greek word there is episkopos. We get the word episcopal church from it. Originally, it was translated in the King James as bishop. But of course, bishop has all this baggage. So we just say a leader or an overseer, a guardian, a supervisor. This is where the qualification of elders, that he must be managers, good managers of his own household. Why is that? Why must an elder be a good manager in his own household? Because now he's going to be managing the whole church. In this case, hundreds of people. He's going to be managing money. He's going to be managing and training other elders and appointing them. So an elder must be able to lead. And then lastly, as you well know, an elder must be able to shepherd. 1 Peter 5.2 Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. What does that mean to shepherd the flock? Well, a shepherd would do many things, and they're described throughout the Bible for elders. He must protect the church from wolves. Those are false teachers. He must work hard and help those in need. He must counsel and resolve conflicts. And he must conduct 
church discipline. These are the responsibilities each elder in the church has. But these responsibilities are not just for elders. To pray, to teach, to lead, and to shepherd. Also, men of the church, are your responsibility in your family. These are the qualifications for a godly man to shepherd and lead his family. To be a family shepherd. Praying for and with his wife and children. Teaching them God's word. Leading them as a guardian, an overseer, a protector. And shepherding them by counseling, discipling, and protecting them. So let our elders be a good example of each man in his own family and what he needs to be doing as a family shepherd. So we've looked at the nature of biblical leadership. And we've looked at the duty of biblical leadership. But let's spend the remaining part of our time looking at the responsibility of each of us as church members to our leadership. What is required of us? What are our duties? I know that's a bad word today, duties. But the Bible does have commands. It does have imperatives. It does have duties that we are to follow. And so let's look at just five that I've listed. First of all, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. Let's, let's look at quite a few verses uh, in these next five points. Hebrews 13, 18. Hebrews 13, 18. Go there with me. The first thing we should do is pray for our elders. Hebrews 13, 18 says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Also, 1 Thessalonians 5.25, the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, pray for us. Real simple command. Pray for us. Who doesn't need prayer? And how much more so the elders and leaders in our church? It's not just a good idea, Paul says, but a command. Pray for us. As the apostles were spiritual leaders, our elders are spiritual leaders in our church, and they need just as much prayer. Are you praying for your elders? Ask yourself that. Are you praying? Are you praying for Chris? Are you praying for Thad? Are you praying for Harold? Are you praying for George? Are you praying for Bill? Who needs your prayers right now and all that he's going through and the trials in his life? I'm speaking to myself as I, as I read this list as well. I need to pray for these men every day. But what should we pray for? What should we pray for? If you're taking notes, this is really the best of... Uh, If you're not taking notes, you should on this because it's the best list of what we should pray for. We should pray for their holiness. For their holiness. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. As Chris said, every pastor is an elder and every elder is a pastor. And this man knew, McShane knew that every day He needs to be holy for his people. How can you shepherd someone to be more holy if you yourself are not? And he understood that. Martin Lloyd-Jones also said, the ruling idea ought to be that the pastor is a shepherd, not a pet lamb. He must be alert to the danger of trying to be nice and popular and chatty. The minister is to be always and everywhere the man of God. 
Not merely when he's in chapel or taking a service, not merely when he's up in the pulpit preaching, but always the man of God. He should always move against the people, move amongst the people, sorry, as one who has been with God. His chief object should be to please God rather than to please men. What is needed is not the Spirit, little s, but the Holy Spirit. What the minister thinks of himself is not of importance. He can only win his place and have respect in the church by a holy life. So pray for your elders' holiness. Pray also for their spiritual protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, George has already had a sermon preached to him, but let me tell you, brother, the devil's going to come after you now more than ever because now you're a leader in the church. And he is going to come after you and he's going to challenge you and your family and he is going to attack you spiritually, maybe even physically. But with the strength of God, I know you're ready for that. Also pray for physical attacks from the world and the devil. As we know, Satan can sometimes use illness in our family and he can use sicknesses and aches and pains in our body to try and keep us from doing the leadership and ministry that we need to do. Also pray for his marriage. Pray for your elder's marriage, that it will exalt Christ and that he will lead his wife in the word and in prayer. Pray for your elder's wisdom and understanding in very difficult decisions. I mean, just sitting in, learning from these men in elders' meetings, sometimes it scares me some of the decisions that have to be made. I remember one of the first church discipline issues that I heard about. Uh, I went home that night and could not sleep. And it took me a couple of days before I could sleep well because it was so troubling to hear. These men have to make very difficult decisions. Study also that they have, uh, pray also that they have time to study and soak themselves in the Word. Pray that they have time to study and soak themselves in the Word. And also pray that they lead the church in proclaiming the gospel to Kerrville and the surrounding areas. So please, I beg you, pray for your elders. Secondly, follow the biblical process for any accusations or problems against your elders. That means don't speak against them without biblical warrant. It seems like the church at large, not necessarily here, but just the church at large in America, is all about criticizing its leaders. Even when they're trying to do the best job possible according to the Bible, it's critical spirit, it's attacking, and it's gossip. And so the Bible has a process for that. It's in 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. You see, these men are not perfect and are not completely outside the scope of discipline. God has said, if an accusation of sin comes against an elder, here's the process. What does that sound like? You need two to three witnesses to confirm that they've sinned. What does that sound like? Church discipline for any member of the church. It's exactly the same, isn't it? Church discipline for elders is in the Bible. So a lot of people push back and say, elders can never be touched. That's sort of American Christianity. Elders can never be touched. They're, they're above anyone claiming that they've sinned. But the Bible has a clear process for that. 
So my ex- exhortation to you would be, don't criticize, gossip, or speak out against your elders unless you followed the biblical process. Thirdly, trust them when it comes to church discipline. Trust your elders when it comes to church discipline. Let's go to Matthew 18, 18. Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. Often this is cited out of context, isn't it? But this is talking about church discipline. Plurality of elders. Two or three church leaders. And why did Jesus go to such a great extent to tell them, I am with you. It's already been done in heaven. Why would you do that? Because this is a very difficult task for elders to go through church discipline. And I can tell you that it's a very trying process because I've seen, I've seen elders go through this. And men and women, friends, they have to make some very difficult decisions, as I said. And that can worry them. But Christ has given them comfort and said, I am with you. He says, look at that. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. It's already decided in heaven. The elders are just acting it out on earth in the church. They're already doing, they're only doing what Christ has told them to do in the church. Jesus is saying, don't fear having to discipline someone because I'm there with you. The decision has already been made. Now, some Christians can grumble, complain, or even leave a church over church discipline. They say, that sounds unfair according to our modern human reasoning. That sounds harsh. But here's our Lord in his own words. I believe that's why it's in Matthew and not in Paul. So we could look at it in the red letters and say, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has commanded church discipline. So trust them when they have to make such hard decisions. Even when you don't have all the details. Trust that they have enough details to make the decisions that need to be made. Fourthly, Respect and appreciate your elders. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 Go with me to 1 Thessalonians 5.12 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 13 says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Who is that? Who labors over you, has charge over you in the Lord and gives you instruction? That's your leaders. That's your elders. And he continues, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Why does he throw that live in peace with one another at the end there? Just a real quick comment on that. Because there's always tension, isn't there, between leaders and those whom they lead. There's always tension. 
So he tells them, appreciate them, esteem them very highly, and then live in peace with one another. Paul is saying that it's because of their work, though, that we should esteem them. Because of their work. It's not necessarily their position, even though that's given by Christ. It's not because they're our best friend, or they're not our best friend, or we don't like their football team, or we don't like basketball, or, you know. We are to esteem and appreciate our elders because of the work that they do. And what is that work? They're ministering of the word. That's where we're to esteem elders. Leon Morris, a Bible commentator, said, a special kind of love within the brotherhood is love for the leaders. They are to be loved because of their work, not necessarily because of their personal qualities. I have a lot of personal qualities that some people may not like. But I should be judged as an elder someday and a pastor and a teacher based on how I deliver this word, how I teach this word, how I preach this word, how how I uphold this word. So the question then is, have you told your elder or elders how much you appreciate them? How much you highly esteem them? How much you value their service? I would encourage you this week even to to drop an email, a letter. Even call them. And just tell them how much you appreciate the work that they do. And then lastly, what can we do for our elders or what should we do for our elders? To submit and obey. Submit and obey. Hebrews 13, 17. The last verse we'll look at this evening. Hebrews 13, 17. One of the most important verses for elder, an elder-ruled church or an elder-governed church. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. To obey means to follow, to listen to someone when they tell you what to do. To submit, well, if biblical leadership is a, is a bad word in our world today, to submit is one of the most hated words within and without Christianity. To submit, it almost, in some people's minds, brings up an archaic government that would force people to do things against their will. But here it is in Scripture for church leaders. And it simply means to yield or to give way to someone's authority. We're to obey them, we're to listen to them when they tell us the truth of God's word, when they guide us, when they shepherd us, and we're to submit to their authority when they make decisions. But why, Paul, why are you, well, I think it's Paul that wrote Hebrews, there's, I let the cat out of the bag, but why, Paul, are you saying that we should submit and obey our elders? Look at the rest of the verse. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. To keep watch in the Greek means to go sleepless. A shepherd would stay up all night to protect his flock sometimes, watching for the wolves, watching for the predators to come in. These men are keeping watch and they're going sleepless to keep a constant vigilance. As a shepherd over the sheep, the elders keep watch tirelessly over the congregation. I'm sure if you ask the elders of this church how many hours of sleep that they've lost 
over-shepherding the flock. They wouldn't tell you, first of all, but I guarantee you they lost some sleep over it. And Paul says here they keep watch over your souls. Why? Because they're going to give an account someday. They're going to stand before Christ, and they're going to give an account, not necessarily in this passage over what they've done, but over the flock. They're going to give an account for each of you and how you've progressed in the faith. And what does he continue to say? Look at that verse. Let them do this with joy. We know what joy is. And not with grief, which is the opposite of joy. Grief here means sighing or groaning. A burden upon the elder. When a church member does not obey and submit to leadership, this causes a heavy burden upon the elders. That's why he's admonishing Christians to do this, to submit and to obey. With the authority of the word, when the elders are practicing that biblically and a person does not submit, what happens? Paul says, this would be unprofitable for you. Unprofitable. It's kind of a neutral word, unprofitable. It just sounds like you're not getting something. But actually, in the Greek, it's much stronger. It's a disadvantage, a harmful or detrimental thing. Basically, what he's saying is a professing believer who refuses to submit to biblical leadership is showing unfaithfulness. They're showing unfaithfulness. They're not showing good fruit that a believer should show. Therefore, what's the opposite of unprofitable? It must be profitable if you obey and if you submit. That means you'll be rewarded. The Bible speaks a lot about rewards in heaven and the kingdom. You'll actually be rewarded by submitting, for submitting to your elders and obeying them. Now, one common objection, though, is, isn't this too much power for a group of men? I mean, God wants us to have no one but Christ, right? The priesthood of all believers. Well, Alexander Strzok answers his objection quite well. He says, As Christ's under-shepherds and God's steward, the elders are under the strict authority of Jesus Christ and his holy word. They are not a ruling oligarchy. They cannot do or say whatever they want. The church does not belong to the elders. It's Christ's church and God's flock. Thus, the elders' leadership is to be exercised in a way that models Christ-like, humble, loving leadership. Members of the church, let's have this thinking towards our elders. We're to submit to them by submitting to Christ. When we submit to the elders, we are submitting to Christ. First, because Christ commanded us to do that through this verse I just read to you. And secondly, because he's raised up and appointed elders for our church. So there's five things you can do for your elders. Five responsibilities, five duties that you have towards the leadership of this church. Some of it sounds like admonishment. Some of it sounds like commands. I'm not aware of any problems in this church, so don't get that idea. But obviously it's in the scripture. And God wants us to hear it. And God wants us to follow it. So what we've seen tonight regarding church leadership is that Christ is the chief shepherd, but that he's appointed a plurality of elders to govern the church. These elders have responsibilities to us. We have responsibilities to them. And I thank God that he has put five biblical elders 
so far in this church. And I pray that he will raise up even more in the coming days ahead. If it's his will, he can raise up men from among us at any point. And they can be trained and they can join the leadership of the church. So join with me as I pray and pray specifically for the elders in this church. And then I believe we have a closing song. Father, I pray tonight specifically for our leadership here at Kerrville Bible. Lord, I pray that Chris and Thad and Harold, that George and Bill will just lead holy lives, Lord, that they will be pursuing holiness every day through the study of your word, through prayer, through fellowship with the saints. And Father, I pray for their marriages. I pray for protection against attacks from the devil. I pray that they will have time to study the word, Lord, that they will have time to interact with those that they shepherd. And Father, I pray that even now there might be men among us that you might want to raise up in the future as elders, more shepherds for the flock. And so if that's your will, Lord, work in those men's heart today. Begin to plant a seed so that they may one day join and lead the church. Father, I'm so thankful that you've been clear in your word that we have a plurality of elders. And Lord, let us all join in submitting and obeying them in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.